If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter to get into this uh, Bible reading today and uh, to see what the Lord would have to say to us as we worship Him. We want to worship Him, not just what we say, we want to worship Him, even what we say to be based on what He says about himself. So we're in, we're in second Peter here. Uh, last week we, we looked at, uh, the beginning, uh, or, or the end really, thank you, Shepard, of, of the greeting, uh, how Peter said that grace and peace are multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Uh, and so now, starting in verse three, now we're going to go even deeper into what does it mean uh, if, if we get all this from this knowledge of God and of Christ, uh, that we get more grace, not like our treasury of merit filled up or anything like that. But if we, if grace is multiplied to us by knowing more about God, he's now going to move us into the question of what do we know? Christian, what do you know? What can you know about God that is going to increase your understanding of the grace that God has had on your life, of the peace that is yours because of Christ? And so he's going to break off into the rest of the book talking a lot about what you know, talking a lot about about knowledge. And I mentioned at the end of last week, knowledge is going to be very important for the rest of this letter. He's going to bring up the word knowledge or use words based on the root of the word knowledge 12 times, uh, at least 12 times throughout the rest of this book. It's going to be at least three times that he'll mention knowledge in every one of these chapters. So knowledge is going to be an important thing. And you can already see why knowledge would be important if grace and peace are multiplied to us through knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, then, of course, knowledge is going to be important. Of course it would be, you would want to say, if grace and peace are multiplied to me based on what I know, tell me what I know or tell me what I need to know. Fill my brain with whatever knowledge that is. Because I know a lot of people who struggle with wanting uh, to understand the grace of God on their life. They struggle with anxiety and guilt about, you know, uh, you know, is God really going to forgive me? Am I re-? And to understand the grace of God. If you struggle with pride in your salvation, if you think it's about you and that pride leads to, you know, sort of maybe an antinomian sort of, or, you know, I'll just live however I want to and I'm good. God's going to take care of me to, to see God's grace that he would save you. I mean, or peace. How many people struggle with peace in their lives? I just want more peace. I don't feel very at peace with the life that I have. Maybe I don't feel at peace with God. Should I be at peace with God? Am I at peace with God? Maybe I'm not at peace with my, with my life, with my job or lack of job, uh, whatever it is. Where does that? So all these things that we struggle with, and he says grace and peace, are those things are multiplied to you the more you know about God, the more you know about Christ, that those things come to us by God's grace when we know uh, those things. But uh, it is that knowledge now that he's going to jump into. Uh, we'll read verses 3 and 4. Uh, to, to start moving into this section uh, here in chapter one. Uh, today, we'll just read three and four. I don't think we're going to get to four, but we're going to shoot for it. Uh, but let's stand in the honor of reading God's word and let's begin to see what can we know about God or what do we know and how do we know it? Where does this knowledge even come from? And before we do this, those of you who, who we, we text in the morning, these Bible verses, uh, and feel free to text Bible verses back, by the way. That's always fun. Um, is 
is we, I was struck as we were reading through Deuteronomy uh, and, and Numbers, uh, especially Deuteronomy 5, where it says, what people are like you that have heard the voice of God and lived? And I thought about that in relation to our Bibles. And today as we stand, let's recognize we're about to hear from God. And one of the great graces you're going to get today is you're going to read God's word and not die immediately. It really is. I mean, and we, we can say, oh, that's so funny, but that's really what should happen. God says he is so holy. His word is so powerful that the fact that even seeing and hearing his voice through his word, he said, what nation is like that, that has heard my voice and lived? Uh, he repeats that over and over to the nation of Israel. And we would be wise to remember that as well. This is a great grace that we have, but it is also not something to treat lightly. This is the word of God. Uh, and so I hope as we read that, you're just one saying, God, thank you for not killing me. Uh, but two, God, thank you not only for not. It, what's crazy about it is not only does he not kill us, this word is actually now what makes us alive. Uh, and that's another great grace of God. So uh, this word that should kill you is by his grace going to make you to live. So let's read it uh, and let's rejoice in it. Uh, starting in verse three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, that God, you would be gracious to us, that grace and peace would be multiplied to us as you teach us about yourself, about your son, that your Holy Spirit would take these words of yours and apply them to our hearts. Speak to us through these words that we might know the things we need to cast off and the things we need to take up, what we need to forget and what we need to remember, that we might cherish you in everything that we do. Thank you, Father, that we have heard from you and still live, and that that's word is what makes us alive. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so, so let's just see as he's moving into this question of knowledge, let's see just how important uh, knowledge is. The first thing we're going to see here in verse 3 uh, is that all of the Christian life comes from God and Christ. All of the Christian life comes from, from him. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, this, this is probably not shocking after the last couple of weeks where we saw uh, the gift of God in grace, the gift of God in our peace, how we've obtained a faith of equal standing. We've already seen how our faith comes from God. Grace and peace come to us from knowing God and what God has done for us. None of those things come from us. So it's not surprising here that, that we would learn again that these things come from God, that life and godliness are granted to us. They're not, they're not earned You don't earn eternal life. You don't earn godliness. They are granted to you by God's divine power. And that word granted uh, is is an interesting word. It actually comes from the word gift. 
It's the verb uh, for the word often translated in the New Testament uh, as gift. Again, very similar to the idea, remember we saw in verse 1, where he says we've obtained a faith. That word obtained, remember, means casting of lots. It comes just by lot, by chance. Uh, it's not something that you earn, not something you deserve, that, that faith is a gift from God. And here he says another gift. He has gifted us all the things that pertain to life and godliness. Uh, in fact, if you want to see just how much, how, how similar, how we've seen this word before, this is the same word you see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. You know, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Same word here, same root. This is the verb form of that, of that root, but same idea. Uh, so what has God gifted us by his divine power? He says he has gifted us all the things, and, and I want to put a focus on all, because all is actually the first word in the Greek to put emphasis on it. Uh, all of the things, everything you have as a Christian, all of the things that are going to be of life and of godliness, all of them come from God. All of them are gifted. There's not a, God doesn't give you sort of an introduction into godliness and an introduction into eternal life, and then you take the rest of the steps. And then you get yourself there. All of it comes from him. All of it is gifted from his hand, not from yours. So we don't earn those things. We don't deserve those things. So again, we see that, that grace is going to continue to be a theme throughout this idea. All of this life and godliness, they come, everything comes from God. By his divine power. Not by your power, by his divine power. So let's, what does that mean? Let's start to look at those, those two things. He's given us everything that relates to what two things? He's given us everything. So when we say we get everything in the Christian life comes from God and from Christ, what are you talking about? One thing he says is life. All of the things that have to do uh, with life, uh, it, it's funny, in the, in, in the Greek, it's actually all of the life things. We have to put the word pertain, which is always interesting. So you're explaining it to your kids and you say, all the things that pertain. And they're like, what is pertain? Uh, and I was like, that's a word you'll never use again. Um, unless you become a lawyer. Uh, that does not pertain. Uh, I don't know if they do that. I think they did it on Matlock a couple of times. Uh, but all it means is everything, all of the things that have to do with life, all of the things that have to do with godliness, all of those things come from God. They've been granted to you, gifted to you by God. So what does he mean? All of the things that have to do with life. Well, he's not just talking about physical life here. He's not just saying, you know, your biological life comes from God. Although that is certainly true. God is a creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Uh, that, that is definitely true. But what he's talking about here is he uses a different word from, from physical life, the bios, where we get the word biology. He uses a word that, that normally means eternal life. That God has given us all the things that have to do with eternal life. Every, everything that has to do with eternal life comes not from us, but from God, it has been granted to us, been gifted to us by God. And that makes sense that it is gifted because, I mean, friend, understand, it would take divine power to revive your dead heart. The idea that you think your, your dead heart could be revived by any other means than God is to not understand how dead our hearts are before salvation. 
There's a reason that you see that the Bible will talk about, even Jesus talks about in the parable of the soils, that there will be people who it will seem that want to try and revive their own hearts and either the, the pressures of this world choke them out like vines or persecution comes and burn it, burns them up because they don't have any root because you can't start your own eternal life. You can't, you can't trigger yourself to live forever. You can't take your dead heart and make it alive. You can't take those, you know, you, when someone is coded, they don't put the CPR paddles, you know, or whatever in their hands and say, let's hope they put it on their chest. But we're just going to keep riding this ambulance and see, you know, maybe if we hit a bump, it'll work out all right. No, because th- the dead don't do that. In the same way, it is the divine power of God that gives you life. The divine power of God that gives you life and not just life, but life eternal and again we saw this last week didn't we when we looked at ezekiel 37 and we already i mean this isn't something new that peter's pulling up we've already seen in ezekiel 37 we are a valley of bones and very dry bones and the question is who can make them live and ezekiel says oh god you know i don't know how in the world is a valley full of dead dry bones gonna live and he says when i breathe life into them they will live and he says that's what i'm gonna do for you That's what I do for you in salvation. Your heart is dead. You don't desire the things of God. I'm your creator, and yet you don't think about me. You don't care for me. You don't love me. You live for yourself. You do what you want to do. Choose to live how you want to live. So how are you going to go from that, which is going to lead to damnation, to now finding life? Because my divine power has to make you alive. He's got to gift you the things of eternal life. And notice that it says here that that this eternal life that comes only from God. So we know eternal life comes only from God. But this eternal life is not something that he will grant us. It is something that he what? Has granted us. And that's a very important difference in verb there. God has already given you as a believer eternal life. Eternal life is not something that you're waiting for. It is something that you are living in now. It just continues after you die. Eternal life is not some new thing you get when you get to heaven. Eternal life is something that you get now. That dead heart that he has brought to life, he has brought it to life with a life that will never die. You're not waiting on eternal life. Christian, the life you have beating in your soul is a life that never goes away. I used to think that, it, that eternal life was something that you just got uh, one day, like when you get to heaven right, and you get eternal life. But eternal life is not just something that we get in the new heavens and the new earth. It's the type of life that believers now have in Christ. They have genuine, real life that will never go away. Christ has given you, gifted you, a life that cannot end. In fact, Jesus Jesus told his believers that several times. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to save you, and then one day you're really going to live eternally. He says, yeah. That eternal life has happened now. Your heart was dead and now it's alive. But that live heart, not like, not, death's not going to stop that, that life that I've given you. That life is going to continue. Your body will join it again someday. But look at what he says in like John chapter 11. 
John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall what? Shall never die. Do you believe this? So Christ gives us an eternal life, a life that can't die, that even if our bodies die, we don't die. We don't die. Our bodies may die, but the life Christ has given us, those hearts that he's made alive, that life in our souls never stops beating. In fact, that's why Jesus says, those who live and believe in him can never die. And he asks, do you believe this? Do you believe that in me you live forever, that you can't really die? But this is not something he just pointed out once. This is something like, take for example, we should, we should really already know this, right? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but has what? Eternal life. Eternal life. You, you can't perish. You've got eternal life. Or, or again, over and over, this idea, Jesus, he's given eternal life already to his people. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life. Not I will give them. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. John 6, 50 and 51. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Now we're going to take of the bread in a little bit, right? But we don't think that if you take this bread... You're never going to face physical death. So what is Jesus talking about? That our, we can never spiritually die. Our souls live, never die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Or John 8, 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Never see it. Eternal life, again, is not something you look forward to as a believer. It's something that God has gifted you. Eternal life is not something you look forward to. Eternal life is what you're living in now. And you need to see that as a gift. If you think it's just a gift to come, then you just wait expectantly and you do like my kids do. And you ask Alexa over and over, how long is it till Christmas? And you know what it is? It's always one day less than they asked yesterday. And sometimes I tell them, it's going to be the same amount as when you asked an hour ago. Because you're just expecting it. But if you recognize that in this world of death, in a world where everybody dies, you have a life within you that can never die. That the, this, is, this, is, this is what answers that question of, you know, will I be me in heaven? The only reason you ask that question is if you thought, thought that the you that is now stopped at some point and that God's going to start up another you and will that other you be like you? And it's no, the you that is you never stops. The eternal life that he's given you, there will never be a moment where death touches that in a sense that brings any real death to your heart. Your flesh may die. Your body may waste away. But the eternal life that God has given you, death can't touch it. So to think that right now you are already living today the eternal life that you will just continue on in throughout eternity. 
And all of a sudden now I'm not waiting. Will God give me this gift? Will he keep his promise? I can go, he already has. I've got the gift. The eternal life is already here. This heart that beats for the Lord will beat for him for the rest of eternity. But it's not just that he gives us all the things that relate to life. He doesn't just give us all of the life things. He also uh, gives us all of the things that relate to what? Godliness. He gives us all of the godliness. I give you all of the, all the things of the life, all the things of the godliness. Those come, those are gifted from the Lord. Godliness too. And so with that, recognize godliness, just like eternal life, godliness is not something you look forward to. It is something that you are living in. Again, this is not a promise that one day you'll be godly. But that God has already given us all that we need to be godly. Don't let the hope of, well, I'll be perfect in heaven, give you an excuse to be imperfect now. Like, man, I am battling. No, you're not. You're just, you're just recognizing that you're losing this war. The, it's like, you're like being French in World War II. I, I feel so bad when I say that. Uh, you know, they, they, you couldn't sit and watch the Nazis march by and be like, man, one day I'm going to keep battling, you know, and one day it's like you're not battling. Because God's actually given you everything you need to be godly right now. Everything you need to be, to live godliness and godliness you've got in Christ. He has given you all the things. There's nothing that you are lacking in you. He has, he uses the word all. He's not giving you some of the things that have to do with godliness, but then the other keys you'll get later on. Everything that you need to be godly is yours. It has been gifted to you by God. Now you didn't have any of those keys. You didn't have any of those things on your own. But in Christ, one of the great gifts of God is he's given you everything you need to be Godly, And that makes sense because godliness and eternal life, they really go hand in hand because with that new heart, with that eternal life comes a change in how that heart wants to live, right? Eternal life is not just a physical thing that happens. And so this life is beating. Eternal life is a change of affections. And so if those affections are changed, that eternal life creates new affections. Those affections are godly affections. That's why it talks about in Galatians, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. Like there, there are, uh, there's a change in affection. And so these new hearts desire new things and they will live in new ways. Those new desires, what is in your heart will spring up, right? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the overflow of the heart comes how you live. And so if your heart has been changed, if you have eternal life, it will overflow in your life into godly living. It will happen. You will not just want to, you will obey the Lord. Take, for example, this is what God has already said, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. As I'm talking about this new heart, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and and give you a heart of flesh. So that's like the life part that we talked about. Heart's dead, now they're alive with this life that will never die and and this new life, though, it looks different. It's not just an internal sort of spark. It affects your outward actions. So look at what he says in 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's not just talking about in heaven. 
That's not just saying, I'm going to save you, and then you're just going to live however. Uh, but then one day, I'll make you obey me in eternal life. In the new heavens and the new earth. That's when you're going to obey. Our new life results in godliness, walking in God's word, obeying God's rules. The, the reason I bring the, this up is well, because the text brought it up. Uh, as Christians, we're so afraid of it ever looking like we're saying we're perfect. That we almost ignore what God says about him working godliness in his people. It is true that before your salvation, before salvation, there is none righteous, no, not one. But after our salvation, not only are we righteous in Christ, the Lord equips us for the purpose of godly living, of righteous living, not just even righteous identification, but righteous living in Christ. We see this, that the whole purpose of the the gift of salvation is this, living righteous look at Ephesians 2 10 we know Ephesians 2 8 and 9 that we've been saved by grace through faith that is a gift like we saw but for what purpose does he say in verse 10 for we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them walk in them now not walk in them on the streets of gold not just walk in them in Beulah land or in the sweet by and by. That God has gifted us with faith and eternal life. God has gifted us. We are his good, we are his craftsmanship, his workmanship created for good works to walk in now. We have all that we need in Christ to be godly today. So again, godliness is not something that will come someday It is something that God has given you for today. He has, in fact, enslaved you to righteousness for that purpose. That idea of being enslaved to righteousness is so that we might serve righteousness. So we might live righteously. Christians are righteous because of Christ. And if if you are a Christian, you should be a righteous person. And that is not being pompous to say that you are righteous when you are recognizing, but this righteousness is a gift only from the Lord because I would never be this. It is not pompous to, to proclaim that you are living a godly life. Sometimes we use passages like, like I said, like Romans 3 as an excuse to be loose in our living. Well, none is righteous. Well, that's true. No one is righteous. No one, no one is without Christ. If you have Christ, God has gifted you, he says, everything you need for righteousness and godliness. He has, in fact, changed you to righteousness. If you ain't being righteous, the problem isn't from him. I like what Ephesians Ephesians 4 says. Ephesians 4, verse 22 and 24. It says, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful living. So put off the old way. And we know that. We know we do that. No one, di- no one denies your ability to do that. No one says, well, I continue to live in this adulterous life because, well, none is righteous. No, not one. 
We'll, we'll, we'll know we've got to put off the old life. But just as important, the Bible says, is in Christ, you better take up and put on the new life that is yours in Christ. So what does he say? And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That again is not just something you're supposed to do when you die. This is something that as Christians, we're supposed to be doing every day of our life. Because of Christ, you are righteous. You are holy, not just someday, but now. Now, are you, are you perfectly righteous? Well, maybe not, not yet. Are you, are you perfectly holy? Again, maybe not, not yet. But that doesn't mean you're just sort of off the hook. As I can't be totally these things because I have imperfections. You've got everything you need to be those things. So if you look and say, yeah, I'm not totally righteous, then be righteous. Look at why you're not. What is it that you go, yeah, I'm not totally righteous because of this. Well, quit doing that. You have everything you need to quit doing that. You can't just look at it and go, yeah, I'm not totally righteous because of this. Okay, stop doing that. If you're like, oh, I'm not perfectly holy, why? What is it? And put off that thing, like it said in Ephesians 4, and put, off what, put on what you're supposed to put on. Don't just chronicle your sin like some sort of weird, you know, middle school bug science experiment. And here is my struggles with this and my struggles with that and Bible reading. I can't do that. Uh, And just tack them up there like that's who you are. Look at what you're not doing. Get rid of it and start doing what you need to be doing. Don't let the fact that you can't be perfectly righteous or you can't be totally holy or whatever. Don't let that be a reason to not kill sin in you. I even hesitate to use uh, the word perfect about those things because honestly, the, the, Bible, when you, the Bible doesn't have a problem with using the word perfect in relationship to believers and calling you to be perfect. So like Matthew 5, 48, what does Jesus say? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now he's not talking about something crazy there. He says, love your neighbors as yourself and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, no one looks at that and goes, well, that's something we'll do in heaven, right? He says, do those things and and be perfect like your heavenly father. No one looks at those and says, well, we can't really do those. So Jesus is saying, be like your father. Strive after perfection. Strive to be those things. In fact, you must be those things. Now, we know the source of any perfection that we have comes only from Christ. But what about Peter's call in 1 Peter 1.15? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He doesn't finish that up with 15 different qualifiers. Now, I recognize you can never really be holy in yourself, and it all comes to Christ. And he just says, be holy. And you know the rest. You know it doesn't come from you. You know it's got to come from the Lord. But still, be holy. Be those things. Because you can, because God has given you everything you need to be those things. So be godly today. Realizing that your godliness doesn't come from you, but also realizing that everything you need for godliness to be godly, you have in Christ. He's given you all the things that pertain to godliness. So don't just lament your lack of godliness. Take up the tools that God has given you. You see sin in your life, kill it. He's given you the tools to do that. You see something that you wish you were doing and you're not doing, start doing it. You've got all the tools you need to do it. Don't think you can't. 
Don't think you can't kill that sin that you've been struggling with. Take up the sword of the Lord and kill it. That thing that you wish you were, the wife that you wish you were, the mother you wish you were, the husband you wish you were, be that. Because you've got everything you need to be those things. There's nothing lacking because it has been gifted to you by the Lord. All the things that relate to godliness from him. God's people are marked by righteousness. They are marked by godliness. That's true. If we don't understand this, we get confused when we read the Bible. Because we read passages that says no one is righteous. And then we read in the Old Testament, like we just read in Ezekiel, where it says, you know, hey, Noah and Daniel and Job were righteous folks. And we're like, what do we do with that? I thought no one was righteous. Well, we understand they weren't righteous in themselves. They were righteous because the Lord had saved them. I mean, even, in, even if you're reading the story of the birth of Jesus, it talks about that Elizabeth and Zechariah, that they were both what? Blameless in the sight of God. Simeon, blameless. Man, who was blameless. Now, if we don't understand the Christian life right, we're going, well, how can anybody be blameless? What do you do with that? It's not that Simeon said, I am a blameless man. It's God that said that Simeon was blameless. And I think God knew. It's God that said that Noah was righteous. It's God that said that Job was a righteous man, blameless in his day. It's God that said those things. And they weren't in heaven when God said it. That's, they were living righteously because what God had given them, what he had gifted them with is the same thing he gives us with. There's nothing special about that. We have the exact same things through the spirit that they had. Now, does it mean that they were, and even then, we reckon, did, did, when he says it, did that mean they were sinless and blameless? I mean, sinless and perfect? No, because what happens right after Noah? We're told that Noah was a righteous man in his generation. What happens like right after the ark? He gets drunk and passes out. Not exactly what you're looking for. I want to be blameless like Noah. Uh, I'm just trying to be like Noah, dad. Like that's not exactly, I mean, he's uh, same thing. You can do the same thing. Job, Job, who is righteous and blameless. He ends up having to repent for doubting God. Or Zechariah, right after saying Zechariah is blameless, what happens to him? He's struck mute for doubting God and can't talk. Because he questioned God. An angel showed up and this blameless man goes, I don't believe you. And you're like, I wouldn't do that if an angel showed up. Well, this blameless man did. But it's like, it's like, it's like, I, tell parents, this is like I tell parents when they worry about their kids getting, wanting to be baptized. We don't, we don't need to give ourselves an extra excuse to not obey God. Right? Well, eh, I would do this, but no one is righteous. Uh, I would. Yeah, without Christ, no one is righteous. But you, because of Christ, are righteous. You've been chained to righteousness. You are holy and being made holy. God has given you everything you need for godliness. So be godly. Live a holy life. That's what you're supposed to be doing. And you'll be so much happier if you do. Do what Paul says in Philippians 2. When he says, do things without all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what you're supposed to be today. And that's what God's children will be. Why do they shine as lights in this twisted world? Why does, why does Matthew 5 say that we're like cities on a hill? 
Because in a twisted and dark world, we are living blameless and innocent lives, as it says, and shining as lights. Which is just the same way God's children have always lived in a dark and twisted world. They live different. They live different because God has given them, gifted them what they need to live different. Everything they need to be godly, God has given them. Because not only does God give us what we need for godliness, he also chains us to that righteousness. Godly is what God's people are, not just what we will be. It's what we are. So so don't be afraid of godliness. Don't fear righteousness. Don't be afraid to live blamelessly. You're no different than any of those other Old Testament or New Testament believers. Their righteousness didn't come from themselves. But that doesn't mean it doesn't come at all. Your righteousness, your blamelessness won't come from you. But that doesn't mean you can say it's not there just because you're ignoring it. Again, there are ditches on both sides of this road, right? There always are. It is, it is robbing from God for you to think that you're righteous on your own. That's true. To think that, oh, I'm righteous because I'm great. If, if in your life you think, I'm, I'm blameless because I'm pretty awesome, instead of the only way I can live a righteous life is because of Christ, you are robbing God. But the ditch on the other side of the road, the other way, it is also robbing from God for him to make you righteous and holy and blameless and godly and give you all the things that he's done for those things and then say, no, he hasn't. As if he's done nothing amazing in you. As if there's no change in your life. As if he hasn't given you the things that he says he's given you. So why do we not have to be afraid of words like blameless or holy? Because we know those things don't come from us. But again, make no mistake for the Christian, those things will and in fact must come. So the Bible expects holiness to be be present in the Christian's life now. Not just one day. I mean, we know that we know we're being made holy. I mean, that's what the word sanctification means, right? Holification, being made holy, which is why holification is a better word than sanctification, but we'll blame the Catholics. Uh, But what does the Bible, not only do we know that God is making us holy, what does the Bible call believers? In Paul's letters over and over, what does he call the believers in the church? Saints. Now, again, Paul's not Roman Catholic. So he's not, he's, not, he's not canonizing all of the church in Ephesus. Do you know what that word saints comes from? It's just the word holy ones. It comes from the same word as the word holy. Hagios, hagion. The holy ones. The you holy ones of the church. Which is why Peter can say that what we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because you're a holy one because of what god has done in you you're a saint that's what i mean this is what the reformation was all about saints ain't just these people saints is everyone in christ because we've all been made holy in christ and not just holy one day but holy today like we saw even perfection wasn't a word that Christ shied away from. We saw Matthew 5, 48. You be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We know that only happens in Christ. 
But we know in Christ it does happen. In fact, the Bible expects it. Hebrews chapter 5. Sometimes the reason we have a problem is because of translation. The idea of perfection is, is not that... The idea of perfection in the Bible is that you've gotten where you're supposed to go to. In fact, the same word that it says, be holy as your heavenly, or be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew, uh, Hebrews 5, 14, it says, but solid food is for the mature. That word mature, the exact same word as the word perfect there in Matthew 5, 48. Now, no one reads Hebrews chapter 5 and says, well, no one is perfect, so I guess I can't have any solid food till I get to heaven. Right? We all know that we mature as believers. And that's what is going on in our Christian life. God is maturing us. We are growing. There's nothing wrong for the Christian to say, because of what Christ has done in me, I am blameless. I am righteous. And to recognize that in their lives. And to live that. This idea that if you can't think of any sin and you're really trying to serve the Lord, but there's probably some sin hidden away that God hadn't told you about is not how God works. So, oh man, well, golly, yeah. How are you living? I'm being, living a godly life because of the, of course, the grace of Christ. And when you say that, don't think, "Mm, mm, mm, mm." there's probably 40 sins that you don't know about. And God just going to reveal all of them and smash you to bits. Now, if you were saying that in a prideful way, then yes, you're obviously not living a blameless life because your blame is all over your face and your pride. But if you're recognizing when God shows me a sin, I am by his grace repenting of it and seeking to obey him. And then God doesn't hide any of your sins from you. He's not keeping anything hidden from you. So live a godly and blameless life. And if you strive to do that, then every time sin comes up, you'll whack it and get rid of it. Instead of just accepting, this is just who I am. I'm just Mr. Imperfection. I'm just Miss Imperfection. Here's another sin I struggle with. Here's another sin I struggle with. Kill them. You've got everything you need to do that. And then rejoice when you do, when you, when you kill it. This is what's so frustrating for my own life. And life. We will kill it by the power of God and we'll slay it and go, but I bet there's another. Instead of going, I can't believe I just killed what was once my master. I just quit doing this sin. We'll kill it and go, yeah, but there's probably 30 other of those somewhere back there. Instead of rejoicing, look at what I'm doing. I am killing sin and I am loving the Lord. That is what a godly life is. That's a godly life. Now, one day, the good news is there won't be any more killing to do. But you keep killing and you keep living because you can in Christ. That's what the godly life is to slay sin and to search after godliness, to search after righteousness. So don't, we can't, Christ's work in us has happened now. We've got to rejoice in that. Enjoy those things. Enjoy your eternal life. Enjoy your life of godliness. Those things are not ours naturally, but that doesn't mean they are not ours now. Uh, And so we'll actually, because it's five minutes still, uh, we'll end right there and we'll see where these come from. These are all going to come. Your God, you can peek ahead in your verse 
your godliness and your life are all going to come from when you know more about Christ's life and godliness. His excellence, his glory are going to be how you get the things to live for your own good. So we're going to talk about just how important the gospel is, not just for becoming a Christian, but for every step of the Christian life. And we're going to see how we like Christians, we're just moonshine. Uh, And we'll see exactly how we're that next week. But right now, let's go ahead, bow our heads, and we'll thank the Lord for these gifts that he's talked about today.